0: Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 43 of the Clarinet podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Today, I speak with Josh Redman, who is the clarinet product specialist with D'Addario Woodwinds. We discuss Josh's role at D'Addario, what it was like studying with Cal Opperman and Larry Guy... And, of course, we speak extensively about the new era of craftsmanship at D'Addario Woodwinds and how this mentality affects their reeds, mouthpieces, and other products. The giveaway for episode 42 and 43 is a D'Addario X25E mouthpiece, valued at approximately $99 US. If you haven't had the chance, make sure to head back to episode 42, which was with Tom Kamichek, also with D'Addario Woodwinds. If you'd like the chance to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to go to ClareNeat.com and enter your email address in our email subscription box. This will also give you access to free content updates, special offers, coupons, and more. If you have any listener feedback or requests for upcoming shows, please do not hesitate to contact me directly at feedback at Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, D'Addario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Didario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Didario Woodwinds, visit didariocom woodwinds. So I'm here today with Josh Redman, who's the clarinet product specialist for Diderio and Company. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Josh. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. So would you tell me a little bit about your role at Diderio and sort of walk me through what a, what a day is like or a week? Absolutely. So my day-to-day really deals
1: with managing our portfolio of clarinet products, and that includes both current products and products being developed, and it also entails overseeing a lot of marketing initiatives. So a day can differ really drastically for me. I could be traveling and at a trade show. Um, I could be working on a very nitty-gritty packaging migration project. I could be working with an artist developing a read or scoping out the needs of a read. Um, Or just working on on a marketing project, working with a clinician or or working on some kind of ad campaign. So it really differs from day to day.
0: So do you focus specifically on clarinet then?
1: I do. I mean, my wonderful colleague, Kristen McKeon, handles our saxophone products. And then we have some overlap because we have some products that are uh, for both clarinet and saxophone. So we kind of just split the clarinet and saxophone portfolios. And then for the rest of the products, we just deal with them on an as-need basis. So for example, I'm working on migrating our accessories packaging right now, some of our accessories. So H-ligatures and mouthpiece caps. um, And she's working on some straps right now. So it just depends on, uh, we kind of divide and conquer. We work really closely together.
0: No, very cool. And so it's it's great because you're also a clarinet player. How do you feel that helps you with your role?
1: It, you know, it's really vitally important for the work that I do because not only am I developing products for clarinetists, but I'm constantly working with clarinet teachers and clarinet influencers and players. And it's a really important part of my job to understand as a a player myself, what's kind of needed and what's currently available, and how we can be different and innovative. And just to be able to, I mean, sometimes my job involves going to a, a nearby middle school and giving a, a presentation myself and giving a pedagogical workshop. And it's super helpful to be able to uh, do those situations my, myself um, and manage other people that do those for me. It helps me manage people and. and to do those things better and really lets me understand what's needed from, from my employees and from my colleagues and from the people we work with.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So in addition to your work at D'Addario, you're, you're also maintaining an active uh, teaching and, and even playing schedule. Um, and you live in Long Island, is that correct?
1: I do, yeah. Um, I do quite a bit of teaching. I actually, it's it's probably my favorite thing. I was very lucky to study with some great diagnostic pedagogues. Um, I studied with Larry Guy in high school, who's written some great books. And I was lucky to be the last student of Cal Opperman's. And he's just kind of known as a really great, not only an author, but just a kind of a diehard diagnostic pedagogue. And so I kind of have a niche with high school and college students locally um, that work come to me to work on fundamentals. And I,
0: I really love doing that work. So. That's amazing. Do you have a, a story you would share about working with Cal or with Larry? Um, yeah, uh, both of them are just really, really
1: wonderful people. Cal is was kind of a um, – very much a character. And <laughs> he was uh, – my first, my first lesson – was five hours long and we didn't i think for the first two hours i only played one note like we only worked on making an entrance he called it making an entrance like starting starting the attack um, and I thought, I, I came to him when I was 19, or I think I was 19. I studied with him from 19 to 21. Um, actually, I studied with him until he passed away. And he, he was, I mean, it was, it was grueling. It was absolutely grueling work. But he was always, he just cared so much about his students so blindly. And I remember like we finished that lesson. I was, I was kind of like very fatigued and he told me to give him a call and check in with him. And I figured, you know, that just meant calling for my next lesson. So two days go by or three days go by and I was actually at home from school for the semester and it was like a break or something and i had gone to bed early and my mother woke me up and she's like it's it's mr opperman on the phone and, and i said oh, okay we'll, well give me the phone <laughs> and you know i perked up i perked up real quickly and i said oh hello mr opperman how are you and and he goes i told you to call me and he had this classic kind of raspy bark i told, I told you to call me and I said, "Oh, I I didn't know you meant quite literally," and he said, I-, "I need to know how your staccato is going. How is how is the how is the staccato going?" <laughs> And um, and then so basically that kind of I learned very quickly that he meant literally to call him every two or three days. And he wanted to be able to check in to see how things were going. And it was very critical work, like lots of rehabilitation on fundamentals. And so he would want to actually hear you over the phone sometimes or just hear what was what was, um, you know, giving you problems or what you were doing well with or whatever. Um, just a very unusual teacher and just a very brilliant man. So I'm very lucky to have studied with him.
0: He must have had such passion. He, he obviously has such a wide uh, published repertoire of books. It's so funny you share that story. Um, <laughs> uh, Michael Norsworthy on episode two, I believe, shared a similar one of intensity of studying with With him and it's just it's 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 interesting to hear because nowadays a lot of teachers I think they they're so bogged down with their schedule that you know that hour that you're there is kind of the only hour that you have with them but exactly um, how do you think he made that work as far as as putting that kind of effort and and passion intensity into all his students
1: there was just no other um there was no other way for him anything less was not real and he kind of you know, lived in his own little world in a way, but it was a really beautiful world to be brought into. And it's kind of what I try to adopt in my own teaching. Although I live in kind of the modern confines of, of modern day, right? I have a a way full-time job. I'm teaching a bunch of students, doing a little bit of playing. I have a rental property, you know, like I'm, I live a, a modern life and it's hard to put yourself when you're cramming your schedule in, it's hard to be able to give that amount of time to every student, but I find myself going over a lot with students and not really expecting anything in return and some people are really appreciative and some people aren't really appreciative and some mothers, you know, want to get dinner on the table and it's it's tough and Cal... The difference between Cal and, and us today is that Cal didn't let that bother him. He operated under Cal's rules and Cal's world, and that was it. If you didn't want to follow, then you didn't. Then you didn't study. But this is what he was going to give you because this is what he believed in. And there was something that was really beautiful about that intensity and passion. And it's funny you men- mentioned Michael because Michael is actually the one who sent me to Cal and recommended that I study with Cal. So. Oh wow. It's a nice little, um, the clarinet world is a very small one, as you know.
0: Well, I mean, I think everyone who did uh, study with Cal has gone on to become a fantastic player. So I th- he's obviously was doing something right. He certainly, he certainly was. He certainly was. Yeah. Have you, um, Larry Guy, he has a fantastic interview on Ed Joffe's podcast. Have you checked that out?
1: Yes, it's quite wonderful. And um, Ed Jaffe is one of our artists, so I've known Ed for a long time, too. Um, but Larry was wonderful for me in high school. I studied with him in, in the city. I'm, I'm from Long Island, but um, I used to schlep in to study with him in the city. And he was great with, great with fundamentals and just a really hands-on teacher. And we're still good friends. I um, He asked me to kind of take a look at one of his drafts of his new articulation book, which is fantastic. Um, so that I got to contribute a little bit to that and bring in some of the ideas I've, I've gotten from other teachers and he's so good with he writes books. Has all of these people contribute and bring their ideas in, and I think he's in like the eighth edition of the Ambisher book right now. He's constantly updating and um, editing his works and putting out new editions. And he, I just think he's he's just a fantastic guy, fantastic teacher.
0: Yeah, again, such passion and knowledge and dedication. It's it's really commendable.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. He's had some fine students, too. The new uh, principal of the Met, Anton Rist, was one of his students in high school. So a lot of us who grew up in this region are very lucky to have Larry in the area because um, he's just doing great things for young, especially for young clarinetists, giving them a really great foundation, which is not easy to do and, and commendable work.
0: Yeah, no, the New York, New York area must be just incredible to live in. It's so vibrant. I was talking to Tom about that, too, actually. So,
1: mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great place to live, no doubt.
0: So anyways, I feel like this could be another full episode here with your stories and your work as a clarinetist. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so maybe we'll have to have you back. But um, So back to Diderio a little bit. What, what are some of the challenges um, at your work that you've had to face in your role? And, and what were the s- relevant solutions for those challenges?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So... What we deal with a lot is, um, I say, in terms of challenges, both marketing challenges and product challenges. So um, the marketing challenges are actually something I deal with a a lot. It's, It's probably the bulk of my role. And I think what that has to deal with is, how do we get the word out about our products, which are relatively new products, and how do we have people consider these products as a viable option? And, um, I also deal with product challenges though, too. And that's really how do we produce products that are meeting the needs of a market in a different and or better way. So basically my, usually my staple explanation of this is imagine if there were only ever one brand of toothpaste for years, then all of a sudden in walks a new brand that offers a slightly different perspective, slightly different product offering, Um, My job is not only oversee how those products are designed and produced, but also to figure out how to expose people to these products and try them with an open mind. So I always say if you had only tried Colgate Toothpaste your whole life and you you try Crest, it could work for you. It could not work for you, but it's different. It's a different product offering. And if we didn't have a different product offering, it would – it would allow Colgate to kind of ride on their laurels, right, and not get any better. Mm-hmm. And it, would, it wouldn't it would be good for people that don't know that maybe Crest might be a little bit better for them. And it might not be. And that's kind of what usually what I say is that the marketing challenge for us is people are so used to what's currently available on the market in terms of reads. And we're making reads – And mouthpieces in a different way. And what I always encourage and urge people to do is just to try it with an open mind. And lots of times they find, well, this might be um, a different, better solution for them. And it might not be, but kind of my challenge, my number one challenge usually is figuring out ways to get people to objectively evaluate um, and try our products and consider them with an open mind.
0: Well, you know, they say a rising tide raises all ships, and it is one of the beautiful things about competitions. It does keep everyone on their toes, and it results in better stuff for everybody. It's, my, it's
1: one of my favorite things because, honestly, I, I like to think that what we're doing with production and with our new machinery and with um, trying to improve consistency in reads and mouthpiece products for clarinet and saxophone is really just going to push everybody else in that direction as well, which only does better for us as musicians. And my colleague, Kristen, and I always like to say, and Tom as well, that we like to, we like being musicians first and foremost when we put our feet on the floor in the morning. And we're really working for our peers and for ourselves and making sure that we can offer um, a different, better product for, for our customers, but also that our, Pushing innovation forward is only going to urge everybody else to do the same.
0: So what do you think it takes to design great products then? I mean, you mentioned innovation, but passion, anything else?
1: Great products come from really, truly understanding the need of of the person you're designing the products for. So first understanding who are you designing for, who are you targeting, and then what is it that they need and, and then from there, you have to understand what's currently available to them. And then from there, what's good about that and what's bad about that. So before we design any product – There's an extensive amount of research that goes into it Um, and basically what I do is like we're working on the bass clarinet read right now. We're actually finishing up. We'll be migrating to a new D'Addario Reserve bass clarinet read, upgrading from the old uh, Rico Reserve version. And when I started that project... I did a lot of interviews with people that use our stuff, with people that don't use our stuff. I, I spoke to them on the phone. I got a, an impression of what is it that, what is it that they like about their current read? What is it, Do they wish if anything were different? And from there I put together what's called a scope document and basically um, say what we need to achieve with that, with that product. So really to answer your original question, to design great products, it's imperative to know the needs of the market and who you're developing
0: for. So maybe an offshoot question then that I just sort of was thinking about here is, okay, you've designed this great product for these people, but how, what, how would you define great marketing then? how do you get this to those people? That's a very good question. So
1: marketing, ideally, from my perspective, is, um, is multi-pronged. So we use a lot of a lot of different um, vehicles, and I think some of those vehicles are just necessary to create initial impression of of what you're doing and to keep people um, aware of what you're doing. So that's things like print ads and magazines and um, social media content and advertising and, um, any digital or web banner ads or Google ad words or any of that stuff. So that's kind of your, your basic, um, we're a brand and we're producing stuff and we want you to keep our name of our brand and our products on your mind and knowing what we're doing and that we exist. And then a lot of what we do in this industry has to deal with what I call grassroots and what a lot of people call grassroots marketing. And that has to deal with working with key players and influencers one-on-one in some capacity. So whether that's what Tom does with artist relations in – that um, there's a group of people that are quite passionate about the products that we're making and have agreed to, uh, to endorse our brand and endorse our products. And a lot of those people are teaching people or out in the world and meeting um meeting people through master classes and clinics and, and whatnot. And they're touching people and urging them to try new products and to maybe somebody that has not looked at our brand as a viable option in the past might hear a great performer and s- see a great performance and think, Oh, well, maybe I should try that. So that's one example of grassroots. Another example of grassroots is, um, Like our program that my colleague Kristen and I run, which is called the Woodwinds Method Program. And what that does is that employs a bunch of part-time regional clinicians around the country that go into schools and go to colleges and present workshops on our product. Um, And that's something, again, that's more grassroots that's reaching the the masses, it's reaching students and teachers that are relying on these products in school bands and chamber music and, and whatnot. So for me, great marketing in this industry has to deal with a strong mix of your bread and butter. We're keeping a brand presence alive um, and then, additionally, really savvy, really present grassroots marketing, meaning one-on-one interactions with people, either through influencers or directly from our company, trade shows, etc.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's very commendable how you guys are are trying to sort of get the get the word out there, and and even for example with this podcast, like it's been I've, I've so much appreciated the support, and it's allowed for you know really forty episodes of this show to be produced now. And, uh, but every episode people are, you know, they are hearing that message and I hope that they are checking out the, the, uh, the video and things that you guys have about your new products now, which we, we will get to in a second, but, um, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, we appreciate your support too. And what you're doing for the community is really great because we don't have a lot of this and, uh, and it's important. It's important.
0: Well, it's so fantastic to just be able to even, you know, to speak to someone like you and for students who are wondering, you know, what, which kind of reads do I purchase to hear? The behind the scenes and and from someone actually there, I mean, it's so I think it's so interesting um, f- for that perspective, and I'm happy to share it with people.
1: Well, I think that's great, and also the other thing is is that a lot of students don't realize that people want might want to pursue music, but they don't consider um, music business as a viable option, or they just don't know about it. So, um, really important thing like for whether you work directly for at a company full time like I do, or, you know, there are potentials for for consultant work and part time work and um, endorsements and all, all kinds of things like that that are an important part of um, building a freelance career, if that's something that a student is interested in. So um, my colleague, Kristen, and I are big advocates of promoting business of music as a viable career option, too.
0: No, absolutely. And, and you know, when, when you're a student too, or even, even now, really, I mean, you look at these big companies sometimes and it's it's hard to see the individu- individual faces within such a large company. And it, it's hard to even feel like you can reach out. So just to have conversation and, and be able to to meet these people is so great. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the Woodwind, uh, sorry, the Diderio Method program. And you also mm-hmm. mentioned your work on the uh, reserve-based clarinet read and a few other things. Um I would like actually for you to go into the method program a little more in a moment, but I'm also interested, like, what is your most proud um, or most, uh, I guess, the product you're most happy to have worked on or been a part of it at D'Addario? You know,
1: I think that the answer to that question is the D'Addario rebranding of the Reserve clarinet offerings a few years back when we upgraded the machinery and we upgraded the packaging um, it was a really, it was a really exciting development process because mainly because from a purely product standpoint, we were using machinery that basically, um, increased our potential to iterate by like 20 times. So our previous machinery, we could basically on, only iterate about one or two different versions of a read a week. And now we can iterate between 10 and 15 different versions of a read per day. So if you just think about that fact, we were able to do so much more when developing and improving those cuts when we were uh, back to, I believe, two, two years ago now, three, almost three years ago, when we uh, relaunched Reserve as a didarial offering. Um, so that was really exciting from a design and product standpoint, but also really exciting from a marketing standpoint because it was such a drastic change. And we did uh, a very cool beta sampling campaign in which 15,000 clarinetists got the chance to try these reads before they were launched. And it was, um, a very timely, initiative, but it it ended up being a very, very exciting one and a very effective one. Um, so I think from both a product standpoint and a marketing standpoint, that was probably a a very exciting project I I worked on and probably one that I'm I'm most proud of. And the read I use normally is the reserve classic, the Dittery Reserve classic read. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of, of that one.
0: So before we move on to, to touch on the products entirely and really kind of dig deep with them for a few minutes, um, would you share a little bit of information about the Diderio Method program? From what I understand, that's a, a sort of a complimentary clinic um, masterclass type situation for schools in more than 24 cities now.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, this is kind of the pride and joy of, of myself and my colleague, Kristen. It was an idea we came up with now four years ago. And it started life as, um, one lone person in Houston, Texas, and has grown to, we now employ 48 part-time consultants that work for us and, and perform clinics. And like you said, basically this program is in various regions throughout the U S. And actually we also have five clinicians abroad in, um, in Europe. And so the all of these clinicians are out presenting workshops in various capacities whether that be in schools whether that be at music stores might be in college studio situations and depending on depending on the region and they're they're doing this is offered completely complimentary for as a completely complimentary service for the educator or for the host And the um, obviously the clinician is is compensated and they are able to present a pedagogical workshop of whatever the choosing of the of the educator or the host. And also to do so and incorporate our products as um, a component of that pedagogy. So what we deal with a lot um, in various regions, for example, is we'll send a clinician in and they'll they'll coach music or coach, um, whether it be ensemble music or um, solo and ensemble music. And then within that, they'll be able to take a look at the current equipment that's being used, administer a class set of, um, of mouthpieces in, in various facings and, and reeds in various strengths and cuts, and be able to work with the teacher and the students to come up with an equipment setting that might work better for for the students and basically the premise of this program is not only are we sending great people out to give these workshops for free that are benef- benefiting music education but we're also enabling um, a teacher to see if by chance their equipment offering could be improved. If not they've gained a great clinic so it's no, it's no skin off of anybody's back. But if so, there there might be a potential to to make a student make an educator's life easier with an equipment change, and equipment choice that they might not have known about. Um, so we kind of love this program because it's it's basically a win win for everybody. We get to be considered um, as a as a potential option for a lot of places that wouldn't even know we exist if we didn't if we didn't do this work and weren't so active in these communities. And the teachers and the students benefit by not only getting potentially better equipment, but also just by having a really world-class clinician come out and and give a, a workshop um, with with great pedagogical information in it. So we have a range of people that we just adore. My my colleague Kristen and I, from um, we have performers that are that are performing and. Regularly with major symphonies, we have university professors. Um, we have just um, such a wide mix of people. Lots of private teachers. Um, just a, a fantastic array of human beings and performers around the country that are working with this program, and we just we just love
0: it. So. You obviously bring along a selection of, of products, and uh, do the students get to try samples of reeds and things like that? Or
1: Yeah, they get to, they get to actually perform the clinic on a mouthpiece if they're a clarinetist, and they get to keep any reed samples they use. Everybody gets to try reeds, and they get to keep any of those reed samples. Um, but yeah, they get to try, try everything, and the clinician gets to tailor um, the product offerings to whatever the needs of the student and the teacher are. So it's really it's really hands-on and one-on-one.
0: So what percentage of it then is focused on trying the products and which percentage is generally focused on um, like just getting into the sort of nitty-gritty of the education and the music and the teaching?
1: Well, that, that's kind of the beautiful thing is that it's really incorporated in the equipment as a pedagogical um, as a pedagogical component of the clinic. Oh, okay. So it's, it's basically, I would say, probably 20% product and the rest of it is, is really pedagogy. But like I said, that equipment and, and trying that equipment is directly linked with trying to increase fundamentals and to, to get better sounds and to get better technique and better intonation and all of those things. So that's, it's kind of the, the basis of this program, why we call it the Woodwinds Method Program, because it incorporates equipment as a component of pedagogy.
0: You know, it's so funny, that number you, ch- you just said, 20% on the equipment and approximately, and, and that aligns perfectly actually with sort of my uh, philosophy, which I'm not actually sure who had said this, but, you know, the playing is 80% the player um, and 20% the, the, the um, materials, but you can't go that extra 20% without the right sort of material. Exactly. You know, I, right? I, think that's,
1: I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant.
0: And, you know, it's funny because I I, I was just thinking to myself here, I just got back from a weekend. I taught 20 workshops, 21 hour workshops in under 48 hours. It was just a real grind. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. uh, But yeah, so you end up talking about the equipment a lot. and, And it's one thing to show someone a reed and a mouthpiece, but it's another thing to have one there for them to try and experience for an hour. Exactly. Exactly,
1: and it's and it's so great that somebody can be there to hear. Well, maybe this student would benefit from a more resistant read or a less resistant read or a more resistant mouthpiece or a less resistant mouthpiece, based on what's coming out of their horn. And it's you know it's great. They're all we we um, have a big training summit for all of them each year at the factory. We fly them all out. They get. Um, really, really thorough training on every aspect of what we do. And, and they become experts on our equipment line. So they can really diagnose issues and distribute equipment according to whatever they're, they're sensing as a
0: clinician. So, so speaking of flying and travel, um, you just got back from China. Would you share a bit about that trip?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was at the Shanghai Music China show uh, first, and then I was visiting some of our distributors in China and working with them and meeting some Chinese clarinetists and just trying to make sure that I'm keeping rooted in um, in global, what the needs of the global market are. We were talking earlier that that's a big component of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because one of the interesting things about what we do is we' we're, we're a global company. So not only I focus mostly on marketing here in the states because this is this is our home base and this is where I live, but i'm I'm focusing on building products for the entire world. So it's important for me to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on over there. So the music China show is ginormous and uh, bigger than the NAM show here in the States. If, if anybody, any of the listeners know about that show, the national association of music merchants, quite a large show for retail music. Um, and it's basically a, a once a year, big, big, Big bash. Um, and Shanghai in China is the same way. It's just probably even larger and a little bit more global focused. And so I was there with with our company in China. And then, like I said, afterwards, I got to fly to Beijing. Um, spent some time on the Great Wall of China, which was a lot of fun, and uh, got to work with Chinese clarinetists and got to work with our distributors to make sure they they know about our newest products and to make sure that their staffs are adequately trained. I had a translator because obviously I don't speak Mandarin, uh, but uh, so yeah, it was it was a great it was a great trip. It was a great trip.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. You've just done some real interesting work with the Dario, and I, I'm really fascinated by. By all that you've done there, actually, um, let this segues perfectly into our. I wanted to focus a little bit on the products themselves, and mm-hmm. y- you mentioned you you know go to these global shows and, and talk about them to to sort of the general public. Um, would you give us sort of the overview of the Dario D'Ader- product line as if we sort of just walked up to the booth and we're trying to decide whether to start at the orange box Ricos or the red box Reserves?
1: Absolutely. Um, so basically, our goal is to, and we're working on on making sure that's a little bit more simple to understand for consumers uh, right now. It's an ongoing task of mine. But basically, if you think about our general product line, we have offerings for students and we have offerings, both reads and mouthpieces, and we have offerings for um, advanced students and professionals. So if you break it into those two categories on that bottom rung, we have our Rico by Diderio and our Royal by Diderio options. And Rico is a, um, Rico and Royal are both designed with a thinner vamp profile. And that's really designed for a beginner to be able to achieve really immediate response. Um, Rico and Royal reads feel half a strength softer than professional reads of the same strength. So if you were to take a two and a half reserve, it would feel more like a three in a Rico or Royal option. Mm. And then Royal is – a slight step up from rico it features a french file mark for a little bit of increased clarity so you've got those two offerings on your bottom rung there and then above that uh, you've really got your reserve options so that's for our advanced students and our professionals and there are areas of our country and i'm sure there are areas of your country um, where people are starting on quote unquote professional equipment And sometimes they're stepping up. They're starting on on a quote-unquote beginner equipment and then stepping up. It's really a matter of preference of the educator and the the student. But within the reserve family line, we have reserve, which is that blue box, which is a traditional blank offering. And I like to say very simply that – That offering provides a very clear, dense sound. And then you also have our reserve classic offering, which is a thicker blank option. And that's going to give you a little bit more complexity of sound, tonal cover, um, and richness. So it really is a matter of personal preference of what people prefer. I always give the example that our friend Andrew Mariner, who's the principal of the London Symphony, really preserves, prefers the reserve read, uh, whereas other artists um, like Richie Hawley here in the States prefers the reserve classic read. So it's, it's really just a matter of preference, though. Reserve is typically priced a little bit under reserve classic. And so I think for many years, students have lean towards using a more traditional blank offering, not only for the price, but also because it provides a really clear sound. Um, But that's basically our clarinet product offering in terms of reeds. We also have some kind of more peripheral brands like our Mitchell Laurie reed which is uh, an old mainstay, um, really basically an intermediate option. It's similar to a Rico cut, but has a little bit more density in the spine, which gives the student a little bit more resistance as they're growing. Um, but that's really uh, our read options for clarinet. For mouthpieces, we have an array of, of mouthpieces from uh, our X0 offering down to our X25E offering. And as that number increases, basically your resistance level is increasing. On more open facings, uh, a lot of people feel that you get a little bit more flexibility of tone color as well. So. Our first three offerings are 0, 5, and 10, our X0, X5, X10. Those are, quote, unquote, American options because they're pitched at 441. And then we have our X10E, X15E, X25E, which are all pitched at 442. So we like to say they're for regions abroad. Um, But we have many great artists that use E-series mouthpieces in this country and we have many um, artists that are using non-E series mouthpieces elsewhere, so it's it, you can make it work. Eventually, we'll have more, many more off- offerings, hopefully, and uh, in both E series and non-E series.
0: So the E is what marks it as international, then. Exactly. Like, this, exactly. Like, like kind of European pitch. Then? Is that what it means? Exactly.
1: That's what that's what we uh, that's what we call it European.
0: So there would be a standard X25 coming out at some point.
1: It's it's a very big
0: possibility yes oh, okay. it's
1: just um, we are we have so much work to do. It's all good. It's just right now we're working on other projects um, for some for saxophone and so it's we're limited in the amount of, of mouthpieces we can develop at one time. So eventually there's quite a few more offerings I'd like to put out. Um, And it's all it's all on my radar. It's just a matter of time.
0: So I do want to go back to the reads um, for a moment. But before we do, the X25E mouthpiece is going to be the giveaway on today's episode. Oh, awesome. Um, What would you like to say to the person who does win this product?
1: Well, it's you know I just got back from China and it's a really it's it's a really it's a great mouthpiece offering. It's um it's a relatively open mouthpiece offering with a 1.25 tip opening. It's a long facing. It's makes it a little bit more approachable. It's got a lot of nice color flexibility. It's got a lot of nice richness to the sound. You would pair it with a softer strength read. You can really make any. Um, Mouthpiece option work for you by pairing it with an appropriate reed strength. Mm-hmm. So typically, on more open facings, we would use uh, slightly lower reed strengths. So to whoever wins this mouthpiece, it'll be a really great addition to their arsenal. Um, really nice color and really preferred by a lot of a lot of folks in Europe. And like I said, f- quite a few Chinese teachers were really a, a big fan of of the X25E. So.
0: Yeah, I've been using it. I got a trial one in the spring there to do a review on, which I, I will get out shortly. Um, but uh, I've been using it almost exclusively. I really, really like it, but the pitch is a bit high. So my solution was just to add a one millimeter tuning ring to my barrel and yes. that, then it seems back to normal. But what a, it, it's great. I, I've been playing on very soft reeds with great flexibility and sound and response and volume. I've been and really impressed by it, actually.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. In Canada, are we are you mostly guys
0: playing at four forty or four forty two or what? Um, Most people here play at four forty. This monk piece kind of caught me at an interesting time because I was doing a project with marimba and I was trying to get up to four forty two anyways. So when I paired it (laughs) when I paired it with a slightly shorter barrel, it was like bang on. Yeah, absolutely. uh, So it worked really well. But when I want to play it within a normal setting, I just use my standard sixty six and I toss in a one millimeter tuning ring and I'm. Pretty much exactly in tune. it's 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 great.
1: That's great. Yeah. Um, I remember when I had to play in a CC in our Diderio clarinet choir and I was so um, I was so worried about playing at four forty two. I, I remember I downloaded the tuning CD at four forty two. It ended up not being a big deal. I feel like our ears sometimes help help us out when we're we're in the moment, but i was I was so worried about it. I, and I used a shorter barrel so funny.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I also have a selection of other mouthpieces, of course, which Cleanup Player doesn't. And I've, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I've, I've found that I have some that are tuned high and tuned low or, or whatever, but I, I like the feel and response of the higher pitch mouthpiece better when it's paired with a longer barrel than the lower pitch mouthpiece paired with a standard barrel. It's kind of weird.
1: I actually kind of agree. And that's part of, uh, I get this question all the time, why we pitch our... American mouthpieces at 441. And the very simple answer to everybody I usually say is it's better to be higher than lower. And what we wanted to avoid was going out someplace cold and not being able to play in tune with piano. And I mean, what, what um, ensemble does anybody know that's actually playing at 440 all the time? So to be able to be a little bit higher and you can always go lower, but it's a little bit harder to go the other way.
0: Yeah, it's easy to add a tuning ring or pull out the barrel a millimeter. Exactly. It's a little harder to grab your hacksaw and. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. I love so it.
0: let's go back to the uh, the reads a little bit. I want to talk about the whole new era of craftsmanship in a little more mm-hmm. detail.
1: Absolutely. So basically, what we're doing at Didaria was really exciting. So we've always, since we acquired Rico um, back in two thousand four. We very shortly after that incorporated a digital blanking machine, which automated the blanking process. And basically that's the process of taking the split, which is one fourth of the cane tube, and then turning that into uh, a flattened reed, pre-reed, let's call it, before it gets the top half of the reed, which is called the vamp, cut off and um, into that designed portion. So that we've had for quite a while, which was a, a great, um, which is great for us and helped a lot with the consistency. But we were using habitually machinery that most other reed manufacturers use. We call them the Franck machine. And basically that's a, a machine that works kind of like a key cutting machine and goes back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it's kind of an inherently variable process, one that requires a lot of adjustment, we employ four quality control musicians at the factory that are constantly checking reads off the line. And they're doing that with the new machinery too, but it was uh, always kind of a bit of a burden for them to need to constantly monitor those, those machines. So mm-hmm. we decided, being Dario and really loving innovation, trying to add more consistency to these products that are so inherently inconsistent for a lot of clarinists and saxophonists is to finish the last phase of this automation and to put out a machine that does our vamping process, the top half of the read digitally. And so we call that very simply our digital vamping machine. And what that does is it uses circular cutters and it's all computer controlled and we can make reads faster and they're way more accurate. And the best thing, like I spoke about earlier in in this interview, is that we can now iterate so much more quickly. So if we need to change the tip a little bit, whether we're designing or whatever, we can do that in you know the course of 30 minutes, whereas it used to take us almost a week to make um, a different iteration in the past because we had to make a new, I call it a mold, but it's called a cam. It's basically a metal mold that the reed sits on top of and gets cut into that shape. So wow. yeah, so it's it's pretty crazy and basically, this new read machinery is being used in reserve as select jazz right now but eventually it's going to be used on all of our read lines we now have three of these machines we're working on another one uh, and it's just it's it's really quite amazing so if anybody um, if anybody wants to see these machines in, in action we have a new video out that kind of chronicles the process and that's available on our YouTube channel if you want to check it out
0: so I'm actually going to put a link to that in the show notes, and I might actually do a separate blog post. But it's it's just so interesting to watch. And uh, just so you're aware, if you if you uh, do go to the website and click on any of the ads right now, they will also currently be leading you to that video. Um, and it, it's really interesting. It sort of goes over the process, and uh, and and has some sort of interviews with some people who who are involved. Um, how does this new era of uh, or this new design era, I guess, lead to consistency, or does it lead to better consistency?
1: So, our new machinery lends itself towards consistency in two ways. The first is just that it's a much more um, accurate method of production, so that what we're doing is we're creating reads that are in much tighter tolerances than they were in the past. So from read to read, the technical specifications of each read are way more similar to each other. The second area that it impacts is strength grading. So the way that we determine strengths in a read, of a read is by deflecting the tip and then assigning it a digital number. Once we assign it a digital number, we then decide what range of those digital numbers is going to incorporate each strength. And what we want is for the player to feel that a three and a half feels like a three and a half feels like a three and a half. And we do that by being very strict with our strength tolerances. So those two things are both the ways in which the new technology that we're using lend itself towards more consistency to the player and the artist.
0: So, you know, there's two camps of people probably, and I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, but I hear all this digital Computer precision—it almost seems like computers are sort of um, uh, the ones being hands on the read, hands on with the reads nowadays. And and sort of there's sort of this touch lost from the artists themselves or something. I mean, I feel like someone could argue that point somehow. Um, what would you say to to that kind of comment?
1: You know, it's a really good one because a lot of us, especially as musicians, believe in handcrafting as being um, something that's great, right? We like um, a handcrafted bag or uh, a beautiful handmade suit, and we think that these things are great. And so for some of us, we might play on a handcrafted instrument that's a one of a kind, that's that's beautiful, and that's that's great. But for us, we wanted to be able to take this really extreme level of design and all of this beautiful. Incorporation from artists that we have, and all of this many years of experience designing, be able to take that and make it very um, repeatable. And so, what that means is that somebody is going to experience a more consistent read with a great design that was that was made with using artisan help. Right? We've used numerous inputs from from top notch artists, both clarinet and the saxophone world. And what we've done is we've worked with engineers to be able to take that take that great design and replicate it and replicate it in a way that's very consistent. It's so the same thing with mouthpieces. A lot of people will play on a hand finished mouthpiece and that's great. I mean, I've played on some amazing hand finished mouthpieces, but we wanted to take a design that we really love and be able to, that was made initially by an artisan craftsman um, Lee Good is, is the gentleman who um, has worked on a lot of our mouthpieces with us from a, des- a design, technical design standpoint. Mm-hmm. And take what Lee does and replicate that using CNC machine technology and make that very repeatable. So if you're hand-finishing a mouthpiece, every one of them is going to be different. And if you have something, if you're buying it off the shelf, and you let's say you buy one of our X-Zero's, you expect it to respond in a certain way. I expect it to respond in a very immediate way, to feel a certain level of resistance, to pair well with a certain strength range of reads. Perhaps if I'm used to using that mouthpiece and I know exactly what reed strength that I use on it, I should be able to pick one off on the shelf and put a, a size four reserve classic read on it and have it feel similar. Um, And that's just kind of what we were after is that artisanship is fantastic, but if we're making a mass manufactured process, we're not doing anybody a favor by hand finishing every piece because that means that every piece within a certain model is going to be inherently different. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I do see the the point of both camps in a way, but I, I really do see the value of the repeat, repeatability and scalability and consistency of machines. And, you know, I feel like in some ways the craftsmen of the past, if they'd had access to these machines, there's no way they wouldn't have used them. It's You know,
1: I think that's a really good point, too. And the thing is, is that um, we when we were looking at the process for mouthpieces, we looked at what Shedville and Casper did back in the day. I mean, Shredville are arguably the greatest clarinet mouthpiece maker of all time. He was milling by hand, sculpting down solid rubber. So when we decided we were gonna mass manufacture a mouthpiece, we wanted to do it in the same way, but we didn't wanna do it by hand because we wanted to make it repeatable. But our process starts with solid rubber and then gets milled down. It just gets done on machinery. And the other thing to note is that we have not only myself and Kristen and Tom that work um, for Diderio that are constantly available to try products if needed, but we employ four full-time quality control musicians that are there to make sure that the work we're doing is not only meets a technical spec, but also meets a playability spec because we've all well, maybe not all of us, but I've tried products that said they were technically in spec and I felt a difference. So it's important to also have that human um, element on hand to be able to try something as a musician. So that always makes me feel good about what we're doing, knowing that there are four fabulous, one of them Grammy award-winning musicians at the factory, testing reeds and mouthpieces to make sure that what we're doing on our machines is coming across from a playability standpoint.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you can always go along and hand finish it a little more or a little differently, but it's good to have a starting point that that you know sort of what it is, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. This might be an absolutely. obscure reference, but it, this will talk about machines and and uh, sort of methods It reminds me of um, You know how Glenn Gould The famous Canadian pianist he, he was criticized somewhat for playing A lot of these pieces on the piano by Bach and, uh, But he was also famous on record Saying you know I think that if Bach Had had access to these kind of modern pianos He would have been thrilled to not only hear His music played on them But also just as thrilled To hear what Wendy Carlos is doing with synthesizers And all these different things Like why would he not have been <laughs> I you love know?
1: that I love that. Um, a very crazy man, but a very brilliant man.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> actually spent some of his time in New York there. So. Okay. So yeah, one more thing. Let's say that we, you know, we've bought these new reeds. We've, we're taking them home. How are they best cared for, and what important, um, what what level of importance do you put on on humidification, and and what's does solution for for that?
1: That's a really good point, and it's actually. When we spoke about earlier uh, about our strength grading process and and how a three and a half feels like a three and a half within a box, whenever you're trying our products, I urge everybody to try um, a number of different strengths because it's it's imperative. We I think that a lot of people are used to playing a wider range of strengths, and so they might be used to playing softer or harder three and a halves within a box. And so when you're switching or evaluating our brand, I always urge everybody to try. Like, if you play three and a half, go ahead and give three and a half and three and a half plus a try, Um, because you never know what's going to work for you. I have a lot of people that come from a previous read brand and play three and a half and play three and a half in our brands. And then a lot of people play either harder or softer. So it's, it's crucial to be able to try numerous brands. First of all, um, numerous strengths. So the, in terms of care, all reads, I like to be very general because a lot of people have their own feelings on this. And whenever I go and talk about this in my travels, it's, it's really important for me to be very vague, but to still address it. So all reeds need to be broken in, so they're re-acclimated to being wet and they're acclimated to vibrating. So a short amount of play time in the first few days of life will be best for your reeds. Um, And then also from that standpoint, we need to be rotating our reeds when possible. Many of you listening will know this already. And then that's a good segue to, we make a pretty awesome product that a lot of people love. Um, called our multi-instrument reed storage case, and that features two-way humidity control. So what that does is it both gives and takes humidity and creates um, a, a, an environment of whatever the number on the pack is. So for us, it's 72, and what it's going to do is it's c- going to create an environment of 72% humidity in your, in your reed case, which is airtight, and it's going to allow um, your reeds and their life to be a little bit elongated, and to make sure they're they're more stable in storage. It's a it's a really cool thing, um, and it also fits eight of any size reed, so from E flat clarinet down to contrabass clarinet. So it's a, a very a very handy case.
0: So with those multi um, sort of the reed revitalizer uh, packs. You know. how, how does that work exactly? Do you know more specifics on that? Tom and I were trying to figure that out and we, we didn't Absolutely.
1: Know. Um, I don't know more than it's a combination of it's a saline solution and it's a pore, it's slightly porous um, outside wrapping and so it enables it to pass through the moisture so to both give and take. Um, that's kind of the extent I know because I, I, um, I had asked once what was involved in this, what, what was it made out of? I think I had a consumer complaint once that, um, they, they had ripped it by accident and it had gotten over things and reads and were they safe? Was it safe on the inside? And from what I've been told is it's, it's merely just a saline solution. It's just, um, a chemical reaction of salt and water. So it's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's totally safe, but what it does is unlike kind of a desk hand that just gives, it gives and takes. So you can actually, if you have a, a Tupperware that you can put a humidity sensor in, you can kind of, um, get a sense of, Put your reads in there and put the read pack in there and put your sensor in there, and you can see that it it's creating that 72% homeostasis within your case.
0: So it would make sense then that they could somehow be rehumidified is that possible or are they just something you should replace every once in a while they kind of give up the ghost on it
1: <laughs> yeah you know i have people i hear both things um we say as the manufacturer that every 90 days or so your read the pack is going to harden up and that means it's done so it's time to replace i say between 90 and 120 I have a lot. I know a lot of people that get like six months out of them. It depends on where you live and what the what the um, humidity level is like where you live. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it's it's it just depends on when it hardens up. Some people get a lot more time out of them. I know some people that have been using them for over a year. It, it just depends if it's if it's um, not hard though, it's still working, and if it's hardened, it needs to be changed.
0: So I wish I knew more about this exacting numbers, but what is the exact number that you would recommend for um, humidity of reeds and then also for humidity of the clarinet and can they be stored together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We only have now the 72% offering because we felt like the, um, the other two offerings that we used to have were not selling very well and the 72% seems to be the, um, the favorite in terms of what it does. So I like that, that percentage personally, and that that's, was always my favorite anyway when we had the three offerings. And I just felt like that was a great humidity level for storage to keep them kind of stable um, and, and ready, kind of ready for play. They, they still need to be wet, but it mm-hmm. just adds a nice stability to them. In terms of the clarinet, I use um our company makes guitar humidity packs, and I use those because they're larger in my clarinet case, and they're slightly less humidity. So I wish I knew more about the specifics of like what humidity levels are great, but I believe though that's in the 48 region that I use in my clarinet case. It's whatever's available for guitars. Um and so that's what I use in my clarinet case. And then in my read case,
0: I use a 72. Oh, okay. So they really should be stored separately then in that way. Yeah, I
1: think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it would be that harmful if you use a 72 pack in your clarinet case, but they're kind of small. So eventually one day I need to rebrand those guitar packs as a clarinet product with a clarinet storage solution so that they can be so that the market knows they can be used it's on my very long to-do list
0: so. <laughs> can those guitar humid humidifier um they're obviously not called the reed vitalizer what, what are they called um i think they're just called humidipack humidipack are they you put them in the case and do you have to somehow seal your case or does the does the reed case breathe also like how important is locking the air in
1: you know, on that, on the instrument case, I just throw it in there. So my, I don't think that my instrument case is airtight, but our reed case is airtight.
0: Oh, okay. So you could reasonably throw one of these in your, your instrument case and expect that it would still perform to some extent?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's the same as, you know, some people put orange peels. It's just kind of the only difference is that this is giving and taking,
0: So it's creating. It's an important point, actually, because one of the problems I had with the orange peels, I tried that when I was in university. I even made myself a little like (laughs) pill bottle orange peel thing. But it was really hard to determine, you know, when to change them. And if the humidity went too high, all of a sudden you're getting issues of mold and stuff. Um, (laughs) There was no control. It wasn't able to. um, I think
1: that's why ideally a lower humidity level for an instrument is probably better. I never had a problem with my guitar um, packs in there.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, I think some people should uh, I'm definitely going to look into those and, and check out if I can do that. We'll send you Simon Sean. No problem. Okay. <laughs> it's incredibly dry here. It is so, so dry. I think it's like 20% humidity right now. And, and uh, I've actually got a humidifier in my house to I think most people here do just to try and bring it bring it up. It's uh, super dry. So Ugh, yeah, not good for reeds. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all this amazing information about not only your work with Diderio, but Diderio's products. Is there anything like else you'd like to share before we move on to the lightning round? I don't think so. I think we uh, covered pretty extensively. Yeah, we touched all the bases. I think so. Fantastic. So the lightning round. This is just a quick five to ten minutes to wrap up things, and each question is meant to be answered in a minute or less. Um, but I'm not. You know, who's counting, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is: If I was to walk over to your clarinet stand right now, what would I find? You find the first clarinet part
1: to the Nutcracker because I have to play it in three weeks. It's that time of year. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's not easy music. No. And every year I'm like, I'm going to get that one passage I missed this year.
0: <laughs> it's enjoyable, though. I like it. I, I do like to oh, go and. It's great. You know, it's great. So what is one book that you would recommend all clarinetists read? And this does not have to be a music related book. My first teacher was a Banad pupil and
1: I absolutely love the Banad clarinetist compendium. It's like a th- 5 to 7 page little pamphlet. It's I believe it's it's currently available from Leblanc, but it might be out of print. But it's definitely you could probably find a PDF copy online. It's a great read. It's probably the most comprehensive original treatise on articulation, so kind of the basic premise that our air is always going and the tongue interrupts that air column, it's like my Bible for teaching especially.
0: I'm not sure if that's available anymore, but it's interesting because I have about 10 copies of the original print that I are just sitting around, so I, uh, yeah, I wonder what's going on with that, but it is very, it's an interesting read, so
1: if it's available,
0: I'll put a link to that up online, but I'll have to see.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely.
0: What is the best piece of advice you ever received, and who gave it to you?
1: Hope and practice, but never hope more than you practice. Cal Opperman.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. So I know this is a difficult question, but what is your all-time favorite piece of music?
1: You know, very difficult question. Uh, Classically, I would say the Dvorak Cello Concerto. Oh, interesting.
0: Interesting. So I feel like you were lucky and got a chance to work with some of your idols in music. But if you could go back and um, in time and meet any musician or composer, past or present, who would it be?
1: You know, I thought a little bit about this, and I think my answer is Schubert. No, be- because I think he was literally wrote so amazingly for the clarinet, and he died so young. And um, I would just, I would love to meet him. And I always wonder what we would have gotten if he
0: lived. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, in, in uh, the last episode, at the time this airs, it'll probably be the last episode anyways, I just talked to Daniel Spreadbury from Dorco, uh, the, the stor- scoring software, and he mm-hmm. was talking the same thing about Mozart, like he really wishes that he'd had the chance. I think it was Daniel. Man, I've done so many interviews lately. I <laughs> hope it was. <laughs> anyways, so, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, if people are interested in learning more about you specifically, and also Didario. Um, where can they do this online? Do you guys have Facebook, Twitter, all the things they can follow? Absolutely. So,
1: Diderio is Diderio Woodwinds on Facebook, Diderio WW on Instagram, and I believe Diderio Woodwinds on Twitter. Um, and then I am Josh Redman on Facebook, facebook.com slash Josh Redman, R E D M A N. And I do have a Twitter, but I never use it. I'm at Josh Redman on everything. I beat the saxophonist Joshua Redman to that handle on every <laughs> social media platform, but I didn't buy the domain name, so oh. he's got everything. He's got Josh Redman, Jay Redman, Joshua Redman. He's got everything.
0: So. Oh, all the domains, yeah, that happens. Same thing with SeanParent.com. It was it was out for years to some doctor, and then one time I went to it and it it was available, and I was like, you've got it. So I Did picked it up and I got it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway so yeah thanks this was a fantastic conversation i'm going to put links to all sorts of stuff up as much as i can in the show notes there um is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before you wrap up
1: no just thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed this sean
0: absolutely and thank you so much for from from me at clarinet here for all the support that dadario has offered it was so great to meet um some of the team down in kansas and i hopefully i can get a chance to come out to new york and and see you guys out there
1: Oh, I feel so bad I missed you at, um, at, in Kansas. I normally uh, am run Cla- our booth presence at Clarinet Fest, but Tom did this year because my best friend got
0: married. So. Oh, that's a good excuse. I'll forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going down to Florida? Yeah, most likely. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm going to try my best, so I might see you down there then. And if not, good. I'll try and get to New York at some point.
1: And Tom has been spreading the word. He says he has to replenish the Clarity cards from the showroom all the time. So. Oh,
0: really? I'll have to send more down. Maybe I've got some new pamphlets printed up. So awesome! So I'll awesome. Have to send some your way. Well, thanks so much again, and uh, this was absolutely fantastic. Okay, great.
1: Thanks, Sean.
0: Thanks for listening to the Clarinet podcast. If you'd like the chance to win items mentioned on the show, please be sure to head to www.clarinet.com and subscribe with your email address to our mailing list. You'll also receive free content updates, coupons, and more directly to your inbox. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. If you'd like to support the show directly... You can purchase your new and neat clarinet items at the Clarinet online store at clarineet.com store. Or you can become a backer on Patreon at clarineet.com Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, D'Addario Woodwinds. Sanding, Shaping, Balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Didario Woodwinds, visit didariocom slash woodwinds.